Welcome, church. It's good to have you. We have our visitors today. Um, uh, we are uh, the NRP campus of Park Community Church. Uh, as far as I know, you are at the northmost church in the city of Chicago. Uh, if there was a church one more block that way, they, they could beat us on that. But uh, I think for us, uh, this is the the North Pole, that's what we call it up here, and uh, it's not too chilly today, but we're, we're glad to have you here with us. Um, uh, I want us to think this morning about Jesus. Um, on the night that he was betrayed, uh, just moments uh, before he is going to be dragged away by the religious leaders of his um, nation. Moments before his, one of his best friends will deny him. Uh, moments before the, the group of guys that he's invested the last three years of his life in, poured his life into, will abandon him. Uh, just moments before the crowds that used to gather around him to hear his teaching and to be healed by him will cry out uh, to the powers of Rome, crucify him. Uh, just moments before that's about to happen, we find Jesus where we so often find Jesus. He is in prayer. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is praying. And he is warning his disciples, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. You know, uh, about... Six or seven months ago, God started, uh, we, we, had a, we had a different pastor. He lived upstairs from me, and uh, through a series of events, he, he asked me to lead prayer at our church. And so I went for a walk, and I was talking to God about that, and uh, God told me, you're not to go to church for the next four weeks. So my first meeting with Pastor Darren was, hey, brother, I'm glad we're meeting together, but I'm not going to be at church for the next four weeks. And God took me around the city and began to speak to me about prayer. And he began to show me that, that he wanted to change the entire mindset of prayer in the church. And that he wanted us to understand that prayer was the very foundation of the church. And, and so I, God told me to start praying uh, every Sunday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. And to not move off of that for nothing. And uh, as you can imagine, almost nobody showed up for prayer from 7 to 9. And, and, and as I was in that time of prayer, what God was showing me was that I want you to spend as much time in prayer as the service is. And if you think about when you, when you build a tall building, you build 
a deep foundation so that you can have a tall building. And, and, and the foundation is hidden for a long time. You guys ever notice that? Like you'll see these walls around a place for like months and months and months. And then you'll be driving down that same street one day and all of a sudden there's this building here and you're like, where did, where did that come from, right? It's because they spend the majority of their time building the foundation. And it, it, it's kind of weird when God sometimes tells you to do something that's kind of out of the ordinary, it sort of makes you take note of it a little bit more significantly. And then God up the ante, he said, I don't want you to go to church anymore unless there's 10 people at prayer. And I was like, dang, what do you, that, that's going to sound awful. That's going to sound like you either do my thing or I'm taking the ball home. That's what that sounds like, God, you know. And, and God kind of said, no, no, if anyone asks you, why aren't you coming to church anymore? Ask them back, well, why why aren't you at, at prayer? And, and it was kind of what God was like showing me was that we as a church, we have come to believe that this is church, right? We've, we've, we've kind of grown up in a culture where we go to church on Sunday mornings. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there's more. And that's what God was trying to show me. There's, there's more. And, and so, uh, finally, we ended up with 10 people, and uh, right at that time, God transitioned the leadership in this church, and so all of a sudden, I wasn't just the guy praying, I was the guy preaching, too. And recently, I feel like God is once again calling me uh, to uh, focus on prayer, and so I I think I'm probably being called to step back uh, from preaching for a while to focus primarily on prayer. And, and, and I don't, it, it's like, God, why is this so, so important to you? And, and, and it's, sometimes God does these things to get our attention because he wants us to really kind of think through something. We, we can get used to just doing things you know, because that's the way we've always done them. And sometimes Jesus will go, you know, make his disciples eat some corn on the Sabbath just to bug people, right, and make them really start to think about things, right? That's, that's how Jesus rolls. That's what he does sometimes. And, uh, and so God's been doing that with me. And so as, I, as, I, as I've been really, like, had my attention recently very focused on prayer by the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, it has occurred to me that there is probably actually a wrong way to pray. That possibly there is a better way to pray and a worse way to pray. And the reason I say that is because when the disciples came to Jesus, there's only a few times they ever asked him to teach them something. And the one thing they asked him to teach them was teach us how to pray. And so today we're going to, we've been going through the book of Jonah for the last forever. I feel like it's been forever. You probably feel more like it's been forever because uh, you've been listening to it. And, 
And we've talked a lot about thrones and uh, we've talked a little bit about racism and we've talked a lot about forgiveness and all these things. Today I want to focus on the prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. And we want to take a look at that prayer and compare it to the, the posture and the prayers that we see in some of the Psalms and in, and in the, the model of Jesus. Because there's two ways Jesus prays in the garden. One is he prays, not my will, but yours be done. And the other is he, he tells his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. So let's... Uh, Let's look at Jonah chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 2. And uh, we're just going to read the. I'm, I'm going to read it. And, uh, and I want you to remember that Jesus once said to a group of Pharisees, he said to them, the, the religious leaders of his day, those that were the pastors and the preachers and the the, the guys on the radio and the televangelists, he, he, he got in their face and he said to them, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and greater than Jonah is here. This is what Jonah prays. So, so picture this, Jonah is fleeing from God. He tells a group of sailors, hey, I'm running from my God. Can you take me to Tarshish? They're like, are you paying? He's like, yeah, I'm paying. They're like, cool, jump on in. He goes down, he's sleeping. God sends a storm. It scares these guys. They're like, man, we must have offended some God. They go to Jonah. They say, did we offend your God? He's like, yeah, I'm running from him. I told you that. And they said, what are we supposed to do? And instead of Jonah saying, turn the ship around, he says, throw me overboard. And so Jonah gets thrown overboard. And we talked about, you know, how Jonah was mad at God. He was mad at the character of God. He knew if he went to Nineveh and repented, Nineveh's going to get a second chance. And he would rather die than give Nineveh a second chance. And so these guys toss Jonah overboard. Now, I want you to imagine you're Jonah. You're sinking into the ocean. You're starting to, you're at that point where you're holding your breath and you're about to let all the water into your lungs and all of a sudden you get swallowed by a fish. All right? And you get sucked into its stomach and there you are, stuck in a fish's stomach, okay? This is not a comfortable place to be. There's no way this is comfortable. And I've, in my life, God has done that to me. I don't know if God has ever done that to you. Sometimes God will take you and he will shove you into a tight place where it is very uncomfortable because he is trying to get to the bottom of what is inside of you. All right? You know, it's, it's interesting. We're like toothpaste. When you squeeze us, what's in us comes out. All right? And if it's bad, that's what's going to come out. If it's good, that's what's going to come out. And a lot of times in my life, this happens to me over and over and over again. God squeezes me, but stuff comes out. I look at it, I go, that is disgusting. Where did that come from? 
was that actually in my heart? I can't even believe it. And God's like, yeah, it was. Let's get rid of that now. That's why I had to squeeze you. That's why I had to put the squeeze on you. So God is putting the squeeze on Jonah, and this is what comes out of Jonah's mouth. Pay very close attention to this prayer, all right? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is death, the place of death, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regards to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All right. So. Let's look at Jonah's prayer. Let's figure out if this is a good prayer or a bad prayer. That's what we're looking at here. Is this a good prayer or is it a bad prayer? All right. So, first off, Jonah's prayer uses a lot of language from the Psalms. It's very religious language, okay? So, if now Jonah is after David. Jonah is after the Psalms, so he has studied these words. And almost everything in this prayer, I don't have time to do like go through it all, but if you do a word search on this, you're going to find, I think, about, about seven or eight different passages that are almost like word for word from the Psalms in this prayer. So, hey, that's a good thing, right? Praying from scriptures is a good thing. All right. So, so far, good prayer. All right. All right. But now let's, let's get to the end here. All right? Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, when I, when I read this, what I see is Jonah's basically saying, I was in trouble. God rescued me, so I'm going to go back to church and I'm going to pay my tithes and do what I said I was going to do. All right? Now, what do you notice is nowhere in this prayer? What is not anywhere in this prayer that you would expect a person who was running from God, got thrown over a ship, swallowed by a fish, was stuck in it for three days and could not move, would maybe mention... In his prayer, do you see anything that is blatantly missing from this prayer? Anybody, we really are a small group. You can yell it at me if you want. What? 
forgiveness. All right. Jonah at no point in this prayer acknowledges that he did anything wrong. Crazy, right? And, and that's what's amazing about the book of Jonah, is you have one of the most successful prophets of all time. I, I don't think there's a single prophet that went into a city, preached for one day, and the whole city repented and turned to the Lord. There's not a, there's not a, I, can nev, I don't know of another time in all the history of the world where that happened. And yet this is an unrepentant prophet. God has to come to the Jonah at the end of the story and confront him about the hardness of his heart. So what we see in this prayer is that it's, um, it doesn't acknowledge his own sin. It does, in fact, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Who does he blame for being in the ocean? God! You put me in this situation, God. Um, and what the, the vows stuff is very interesting, right? Because the, the idea was you could make a vow to God to, to kind of show your love for him. But in the pagan world, you would sacrifice to a God to, to have a transaction with him. All right? So one thing, we, we're, one thing we have to understand when you read the Old Testament, what idols mean in the Old Testament. Because they don't, they don't transfer very well to us nowadays, right? We, very few of us have friends or family, uh, maybe more of us here in Rogers Park, but very few of us have friends or family that bow down to idols on a regular basis. You know, we do not see Donald Trump like walking into a room and bowing down to an idol like all the kings of the pagan world. And so like what is up with idolatry? And what you have to understand about idolatry is most people say that the idols were the gods of the things that people could not control. All right? So Baal. Baal was the god of rain. All right? Now if you're an agrarian society, I know that's a big word, James. I'm going to break it down. Agrarian society, that's like a, that means you're all farmers, all right? Like we all have our own land. We all grow our own food. And if it doesn't rain, we all starve, all right? So that's a pretty big deal if it doesn't rain, all right? And we have no control over the rain. Even today, we cannot make it rain. We can't decide when it's going to rain or we can know when it's going to rain. We can know pretty much how much it's going to rain ahead of time with our science, but we can't make it rain. Now, we're not as dependent as they were, right, because we can move our water around with hoses and stuff, but back in the day, if it didn't rain, you have no food, and if you have no food, how strong is your army? All right? Like, it's a death sentence if it doesn't rain. And so, lo and behold, the people worship a God that controls the rain. And so they make sacrifices to this God. It's like a transaction. And, and they even did child sacrifice. Because I need to please this God so he's on my side 
so that the thing I can't control in my life will be controlled, uh, will, will happen for me by this God. All right? And so what we see in Scripture, when, when God is, you know, a lot of people believe the golden calf wasn't that they were bowing down to a, a, a different God than God. Some people believe that the golden calf was, was them replacing Moses. Because they were trying to, they used to tell Moses what was up, and Moses would go up and talk to God, and then they, they would get a message, right? And then like Moses went up on this mountain, disappeared for 40 days. And while he's up there, they create this calf, and some commentaries say that the real problem with that was that they were, not, not that they were worshiping a false god, but that they were worshiping the true god, like he was a false god. Do you see? Does that make sense? So like, like God is not only upset when we worship a different god, but he gets upset when we treat him like a false god. So God doesn't like your vows to get him to do something for you. He's not a transactional God, all right? He's not a holy ATM machine, all right? Where you're like, God, if, uh, if you get me this job, I promise I'll start tithing, all right? Um, God, if you, you know, if this girl will go out on a date with me, I'll, I'll start going to church and be there on time from now on, all right? Like, that's not how our God works. We don't do a it's not transactional with God, all right? And so what you see with Jonah is, is at the end, he's basically, who is he crediting? He's crediting God delivered him, but he's kind of crediting his own righteousness for the reason that God delivered him. And we have to be very careful about that as Christians, that we don't get into this relationship with God where it's like, hey, God, I did this for you. So you have to do this for me, all right? We have to be really, really careful about that. And that's, that's what we see with Jonah, is that, that he's kind of got this transactional view of God. And this leads him, this verse blows me away. When, I was, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So at least his focus is on God's holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. He's basically saying, I'm better than all these people that worship false gods. And so his, his relationship with God is a relationship that lets him feel superior to everybody else. Now, I grew up a church boy, so I understand about this, all right? You grow up, you learn the rules, you're the good church kid, and then you go to school, and you get picked on, and other people be, are starters on the basketball team, and you, you can kind of get into this mindset, God, I'm good, I'm, I'm obeying the rules. Like, why aren't good things happening for me, right? I did good, so shouldn't good happen to me? Like, growing up in church, you can, they never say that, but you start to 
you can start to get into that mindset, right? You can get into that mindset of, and you can get into the mindset of, well, our family is not like those families that cuss, all right? We don't use those words and because we're church people, and we don't have sex before marriage, and we don't get drunk at parties, and we don't, those aren't good things, or I'm not saying they're good things to do that, but when that becomes, when my identity is what I don't do versus you because you do it, and I feel exalted because I don't do it, you're headed towards a problem in your relationship with God. All right? And so when we get, when we look at some of the Psalms, the whole reason I'm on this message is because we were at prayer, we do prayer um, in Lawndale Thursday mornings, and I felt like God told me, look up this verse, Psalm 18, 5, 4 and 5. So if you go to Psalm 18, 4 and 5, we're going to read like 4 to uh, 30. Um, so Psalm 18, verse 4. Now, this is a very, very, very important psalm. It's one of the only psalms in the Bible that is found, like, in a separate place other than the psalms. It's actually in Samuel. And this was called the Psalm of David. And it was kind of like David's favorite song. You know, you got that song you need to play when you're down, right? This was, this was that song for David, right? When he was down, he get out the guitar and start playing this song to lift up his spirits. And, and, and he probably sang it from the time he was a little boy or running from Saul and to the time he was an old man. And so they called this the Psalm of David. It's a big deal in the, in the Jewish uh, religion. It says, I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 18 Verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Now, if you got Jonah 2 on the other direction, you're going to start to notice some similar language here. So that Jonah says pretty much the exact same thing I just read. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the winds. This was actually Baal imagery. This is how they viewed Baal. And so David is stealing that and saying, that's the way my, my God is actually the one who comes down and rescues. So if you were back in David's day and you heard this, you would have been hearing the same pagan language he's using, but he's saying, no, the real God of heaven and earth is the one true God. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. 
The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Baal was also the god of lightning, right? So David's saying, no, my god is the god of lightning. Then the channels of the sea were seen. It's like the, you know, in, in Hebrew literature, uh, water stood for chaos. Water stood for the stuff you can't control. Water stood for that, those things in your life, cancer, those kind of things. Like you, you, you got nothing to fight that with. That's what water stood for. So when God speaks from heaven and parts the water, do you see? That's language all throughout scripture, right? How did the, how did the uh, Israelites get out of Egypt? Through parted waters, right? And so David is using that language. And Jonah quotes this too, right? He's saying, you came into, the waters were surrounding me and you, you delivered me. Um, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. So we see, we see here, you don't hear Jonah saying to God, you delivered me because of the cleanness of my hands, because I did what was right. All right. When David is saying this, he's not saying that I'm righteous, like I don't need a savior. That's not what he's saying. All right. What he's saying is, God's my dad. I do what he tells me to. When I did what he told me to, he delivered me from my enemies because I stick close to my dad and I do what my dad tells me. I do what my God says. And because I trust in him, he delivers me. There's a difference between that, right? There's a difference between a son who says, Dad, what do you want me to do? You're my hero. If you just tell me what to do, I'll do it. Um, because I know you got my back. I know you won't ever lie to me. I know you never would fail me. That's the attitude of David. That's different than, man, I don't do what you do, right? Because I'm better than you. Because I'm not like that. I'm not, I'm not a drunk. I'm not a this. I'm not a that, all right? It's a different attitude. It's all right to pray, God, I'm trusting you here. God, I did what you told me to do. Deliver me. Work for me. I'm, I'm in it, God, with you. Right? What's the difference? One's transactional. The other's about a relationship. The other's about a relationship. All right? So in Jonah's prayer, he uses religious language, but it's just the language. It's not the spirit of the command. All right? You can go to church and you go to prayer meetings and you can hear people pray the Bible backwards and forwards. But they, they might not be capturing the spirit of what God is saying. Scriptures are not magic words to make God do what you want him to do for you. All right? Scripture is God's correction, his principles, his... Uh, promises 
to teach you what is important to God so that when you pray, you're praying his will be done, his kingdom come, because you know what his will and his kingdom is. That's why we pray through the scriptures. Because the scriptures, you know, when we, when we have to make decisions here as a church, we try to do worship first and read scripture, like chapters of scripture, before we even start discussing the decision. Why do we do that? Well, because I know who I am. I love my opinions. I love my way of doing things. I love my good ideas. All right? And, and my ego, believe it or not, gets attached to those. And so if my idea gets shot down, my ego gets bruised. But when I'm in prayer with a group of people and God is speaking to us through his word, my ego starts to get out of the way. And then I start to realize I, I want what God wants. And so wh what we always say is our prayer meeting at 930, that's where we want as a church God to speak to us. We read the scriptures so God corrects us so that we get on God's agenda instead of trying to ask him to bless our agenda. Does that make sense? Like we don't want to be praying, hey God, we made this plan the other day. We didn't talk to you about it. We didn't seek your face about it. But please bless it so that we will prosper and do well. Go, go try that with your coach, all right? Watch your coach play, plan a play and then you run out on the field and decide, I'm going to do my own play, and then look at your coach and see if he's happy to bless that play while you're doing it, all right? Uh, it does, do that with your boss, right? Does your boss appreciate it when you just, like, without asking them, you just kind of go do whatever you want to do and then ask the boss to bless it? It doesn't work that way, all right? 9.30 prayer is where we want to kind of get with the coach, the Holy Spirit, and hear what he wants to do with our church and with our lives. And we let the scripture, the, the, the word of God, the scriptures, as we read it, it sort of it pushes in on us and gets us on God's agenda. So just to summarize, Jonah's prayer uses religious language, but it's transactional instead of relational. It doesn't acknowledge his own sin, and it doesn't acknowledge the need to live correctly. All right? You know, Scripture says that if I treat my wife badly, God will not hear my prayers. Scripture says that. It says that right in the Bible. Now, do you think God can't hear my prayers? No. The door is shut, though. Why is the door shut? It's amazing when someone cuts you off from relationship, if you care about that relationship, you get your house in order to get that relationship in order, right? And so sometimes as a church it, and as a city, if we see problems in our culture and it seems like, boy, God, we've just been crying out about this and crying out about this and asking you to change this, nothing's happening. It's almost like the door shut, Lord. Maybe we should stop and wonder, are we not doing something the way God wants it done? 
See, David could say to God, because I'm doing what you told me to, I expect you to deliver me from my enemies. Well, sometimes we're not being delivered from our enemies because we're not doing what God told us to do. In fact, sometimes we're not even listening. We're not even taking the time to sit down with God to see if he has anything to tell us to do. You see? And if you're, if you're not doing that, then, then maybe that's why God's not hearing our prayers. So he uses religious language. He's transactional. Uh, he doesn't acknowledge his own sin or his failings or work to do what's right and repent. And all in his prayer, at the end of his prayer, he feels superior to other nations rather than he, he kind of he, he actually doesn't even want a savior he wants a, a judge to condemn the other nations so there is a wrong way to pray and Christians can do it too we can pray against our enemies in a way where we exalt ourselves and uh, lose the very heart of Christ and we have to be really careful about that. You know, in Psalm 38, this is what David prayed. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. A fool is someone who doesn't believe in God. That's what Psalms uses, the word fool. So he's saying, deliver me from my own sins so I don't look like an idiot to people who don't believe in God. You ever felt like that? You ever had a day where you just messed up and you did wrong and you had a bad attitude and you're just like, man, I'm just as bad as any person who doesn't believe in God. I, if you looked at my life today, you, <laughs> you wouldn't know I was a Christian, right? All right, that's what David's saying here. Deliver me from all my transgressions so that unbelievers won't, won't scorn me. I am mute. I got nothing to say to you, God. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. He's being disciplined by God. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with a rebuke for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. That's a real relationship with God there. God, you are spanking me bad. I'm hating the way I feel right now. I'm stuck in this whale. And I know it's because I'm a sinner. I know it's because I messed up. I can't blame it on anybody else. It's my own fault. And boy, God, when you want to go after sin, you don't mess around in my life. You go after it. You ever been there with God? You know, Scripture says it is good when a young man is young for him to be ground into the dust. <laughs> I remember reading that was when I was in my 20s and everything was going wrong. And I was like, why, God? Why? Why? It's good when you're young to have God grind you into the dust and teach you that you're a sinner. Especially if you grew up a good church boy. That's important for you, right? God does that. That's how God loves us. That's relational. That's a father with his son. 
I'm making it hard for you. I'm squeezing you so that you can see the garbage that's in you. Otherwise, you'd be like Jonah. You'd think you're better than everybody else. In Psalm 22, he says, From, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows, here we get to the vows again, I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your, may your hearts live forever. Listen to this. So Jonah's talking about paying his vows to the Lord. He's probably quoting psalms like this. Listen to what this psalm says. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, if Jonah would have read that second part of that verse, he would have understood why he was being sent to Nineveh. God rules over all the nations. You know, sometimes, guys, if you just will sit down and let God talk to you, he'll point out some scriptures that'll mess with your worldview. Jonah needed to have that happen to him. But he didn't read all of the psalm, or, or he cherry-picked it, right? Because ultimately, what was Jonah's faith about? It was about him. God was just all about Jonah. Jonah wasn't all about God. For Jonah, God was was there for Jonah. It's the old joke, right? Uh, the dog looks at their master and says, oh my goodness, my master brings me food and water, takes me for a walk, provides me with shelter. He must be God. And the cat says, look at this human. It brings me food, it brings me water, it gives me shelter. I must be God. Right? Sometimes we can go there with God, right? Have you listened to how you pray? Are you, are you trying to get God to make the world work for you? Or are you coming before God and saying, you're smarter than me. You love me more than I love myself. You're trustworthy. You're you're asleep in the boat, but I know you can calm the storm. Not my will, but yours be done. What is your will for my life? Whatever it is, I'll do it. I'll do it. Guys, really what we're talking about today is the difference between a real relationship with God and a superficial one. And you know, you can hide from God in church. In fact, church can kind of be one of the best places to hide from God. Because <laughs> I'm doing the right thing. I'm a good person. You know? I go to church. I don't drink. I don't look at bad things on the internet. 
just leave me alone, God. I'm, I'm living a, I'm living a good life. I'm punching the clock. Don't, don't tell me what to do. Don't, don't make me look harder at where I'm really not aligned with you. You see, we got to be very careful that that we don't hide in our good deeds from God. So easy to do. Man, it's so easy to do. Um, and when that starts to happen, church, when you're here to, to be like Jonah, to have a religion that's kind of like Jonah's religion, that's transactional and not relational, that doesn't want to hear about your sin and about the need to live right, when your faith makes you feel like you're better than everybody else and everybody else's faith, then, then you're, you're, in a, you're in a superficial Christianity. And it's tremendously dangerous. You know, 80% of the people in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide were baptized Christians. Most of Germany under Hitler belong to the church. In Russia, under Tsarist Russia, the Orthodox people of Russia murdered tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews in the pogroms uh, in the name of Jesus because they felt superior to Jews and they said the Jews were the Jesus killers. Superficial Christianity isn't just something like, oh, we got to watch out for it. It is dangerous. South side of Chicago, when blacks came up by a million from the south fleeing Jim Crow and showed up in Chicago and the white parish Catholic church by and large said, we don't want you in our neighborhood. And if you come into our neighborhood, we're leaving. And we hear stories of priests who met black families, black Catholic families at the door and said, we don't want you here or pass them by during communion. That is superficial Christianity. That was a Christianity. Mayor Daly, who supported segregation in our city, went to church every day of his life. Every day of his life. And get this, did you know that the Pope in the 1940s decreed that segregation was unchristian and should not be practiced by any Catholic person. And yet Catholics, by and large, in our city ignored that. And just so we're not just picking on Catholics, all right, Catholics had parishes. Evangelicals just got up and left. That's basically what they did. When 
black folks came into the neighborhood, their property values went down because most of them just got up and, and left. Um, they didn't have as much property to protect and stuff like that. There were exceptions to this rule, significant exceptions to this rule. But the people that were the exceptions were the real disciples of Jesus. They were the ones that were going to take the Christian faith and, and move it past a faith and move it into a deep relationship with the living God where they want to hear from him what he's saying on a regular basis. And so now we come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we, we want to look at his face because church, one greater than Jonah is here right now. Jesus was completely relational with God. He was not transactional. He did whatever God said do. In fact, in the garden, what we hear him praying is what? Not my will done. If it's possible. So we know Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to be betrayed. He doesn't want any of this stuff to happen. If it's possible, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Have you been to Gethsemane? Have you had a moment in your life where God was telling you to do something and you did not want to do it? Everything in you didn't want to do it. That's going to destroy my dreams. That's going to destroy my agenda. People aren't going to like me anymore. Why would I do that? And God is saying, do it. Have you been to Gethsemane and had to wrestle with that? If you haven't, why? If you haven't been to Gethsemane, if you haven't been in those moments where you're wrestling with God, please question whether you have a superficial faith or a real faith. Jesus was obedient unto death. You know, the soldiers came to get Jesus. They said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am he. And all the soldiers fell flat on the ground, on their faces, under the power of God. Do not get it twisted. Jesus, no one took Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life freely in obedience to his father because he was married to the father's will. He was committed to God's plan and he knew it meant his death and his burial and his resurrection. He trusted in that. Jesus' faith never exalted one group of people or one tribe over another. No, in fact, Jesus' relationship with God did the opposite. Jesus' relationship with God welcomed every tongue, every tribe, every language, every person to the cross. So my question to you today, is God calling you out of a superficial Christianity? Is he calling you into a deep 
relationship? Is he calling you to a place where you seek to hear God's voice in your life on a daily basis so that you can be surrendered to him? And if that's you, I want you to take a moment. And Now listen, God gave me this story while, while James and me and Kevin were praying this week. God took me to this scripture. And Amy, you guys can come up. Oh. Jesus is, is going at it with the Pharisees. And there's a man in the midst of them who has a shriveled hand. And it's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, they're really intense about this Sabbath stuff. In fact, the Jews were so intense about the Sabbath, there were times when the Romans came to fight the Jews on the Sabbath. And the Jews would rather allow themselves to be slaughtered and killed by the Romans rather than to work by taking up a sword. All right, so the Sabbath thing was very important to them. And so they're all sitting around watching Jesus to see if he will do the work of healing somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it better to save life on the Sabbath or to, or to let it die? And he turns to this man and says, they walked in, there was a man there with a shriveled hand. Which means this, he could not work. He didn't have a hand to work with. And, and Jesus says to him, stretch forth your hand. Well, if you have a shriveled hand, how do you stretch forth your hand? It's impossible. It's impossible. Your hand's shriveled, you can't stretch it out. That's the whole point. Why it's shriveled. If you could, if you could stretch out your hand, it wouldn't be shriveled. A real relationship with God is impossible for us. We need grace to do it. Maybe you're stuck in some sin. Maybe there's something you're hanging on to and you're like, God, I just, I can't give it up. I tried and tried and I can't give it up. I want to have that deep relationship with you, but I know me. I always back away. I always get scared. Whatever your thing is, you always blow it. I always blow it, right? That's our shriveled hand. But God can come to us right now, guys. Sometimes God just says, I know you can't give this sin up. I know you can't give up your will. I know you can't be uh, submissive to me. I know that there's a part of you that just doesn't want to do it. Let's just be honest. Will you give me the permission to come and change that? Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone would open the door. That's all I'm asking you guys to do right now. If God's calling you to a deeper walk with Jesus, and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I've tried that before. I just can't overcome this thing, that thing that I got to go deeper in. Just take a minute right now while we sing. Give God permission come and grab you to heal your hand as you knew what was impossible.